0: It's going to be a great day in the name of the lord amen hey i like that here we go let's sing about this uh being changed there's a dead man in the grave beneath my name Because of you, oh Lord. I'm chasing again. Because I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you, oh Lord. One more time. Cause I'm because I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you, oh Lord. This is the life This, this is the life, life that I now live, I now live. of you, oh Lord, I'm changed. Because of you, I'm changed. Because of you, I'm changed. Because of you, oh Lord. I'm changed one more time. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you, because of you oh Lord more time I'm changed because of you I'm changed because of you You sing I'm changed because of you oh Lord here we go let's raise a hallelujah yes come on here we go I raise a hallelujah, in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah, louder than my unbelief. I raise a hallelujah, my weapon is a melody. Amen. Sing it out. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. To sing a TM this morning here we go sing a little louder sing a little louder sing a little louder. sing a little louder sing a little louder Ooh. sing a little bring this day we raise our hallelujah to you father we lift you up in song and praise we ask that you be with everyone's here this day and may you be with our pastor as he brings the word to us father we just want to be reminded of how we're changed because of your son Jesus I'm changed because of you sing with me I'm changed because of you come on I'm changed because of you, oh, Lord. Here we go. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you. I'm changed because of you, oh, Lord. of you I'm changed because of you I'm changed because of you oh Lord Amen Please be seated
1: Well, good morning, everybody. You guys doing well? I, Jeannie's doing well. Anybody else? Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. A uh, couple of things I want to let you know about is you, is you may have noticed there is now a bulletin attached to also the, the notes, which means there's a lot going on that we wanted to let you know about. The most important thing is Easter. We're less than a month away from Easter. Uh, this is for those of you who are planners and want to know what your Easter weekend will look like. We have a Good Friday service, 7 p.m. on Friday night. There will be child, or children's ministry across the street for those who want it, but it will also be a family-friendly service for those of you who have kids. And it is, I think, probably my favorite uh, annual time every year that we get to gather together and open God's Word. There is something so powerful about Good Friday. Easter Sunday is a fabulous celebration, but it is meaningless without Good Friday. And so for those of you uh, who have not been a part of a Good Friday service, I strongly encourage you to join us on that Friday at 7 p.m. There's only one service. We're going to gather together. It'll be over in an hour, um, but it is well worth taking that time to prepare for the rest of the Easter weekend. And then Easter Sunday... We recognize that we're probably not going to be able to stuff everybody in on one service, so we have two. And for those of you who go, well, who gets 10 a.m.? Nobody does because we're going to do a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. So for those of you who have other plans for the rest of the day, come to the 9 a.m. service. And for those of you who like to sleep in a little bit and then eat everything in your Easter basket before you come to church come to the 11 o'clock. There will be children's ministry across the street in both of those services. It will be a perfect time. I'm telling you this because there is, this is one of those times each year where people who don't normally think about stepping foot into a church are just waiting to be asked and trying to figure out where they're going to go. Please, if you have people in your sphere of influence, whether it's family members who don't already attend a church, neighbors who aren't already attending a church. I'm not looking for you to try to go and get other people out of other churches to come here. That's not our goal. We're not in competition with them. But if there are people in your world, your work, in your school, in your neighborhood, who aren't already worshiping with a church family, please invite them to join us in our church family. All right? Fair? Another thing I want to let you know about, this is just for those of you who are planners like my wife and several of you others out there, um, Saturday, April 9th, so just a couple of weekends away, the ladies are going to have a coffee and conversation across the street in the family room from 8.30 till 10. It's not in your bulletin, so I'm letting you know so those of you who like to be have advance notice know. Saturday, April 9th, 8.30 to 10 o'clock. There'll be more information about that forthcoming. With that, <clears throat> last week, for those of you who were here, was exciting, wasn't it? Uh, it was a little overwhelming for those of you who were here or f- who were watching from home. It might have felt a little bit like drinking from an apocalyptic fire hose, just the amount of information. My guess is that for many of you, you came away with more questions than you did answers. That's understandable when you're trying to cover 13 chapters in 45 minutes. And I just got to say, I'm proud of Bill for many things in doing that. Yeah, you can give him a clap. I'm most impressed that he actually stayed to his 45-minute timeline, and then then Eric had to come up and blow that out of the water. So my bad. That's on me. Blame the pastor. Um, But he did fabulous stuff. And for those of you who were like, okay, that's enough of that. I'm glad to move on. We did this so that we could be finished with Revelation before Easter so that when we hit Easter, we weren't still in the middle of it because we want Easter to be a time where your family and your friends and those who have not been a part of the church can step into it and not feel like they're missing the majority of the story. But at the same time, there are some of you who go, okay, I got a lot of questions and I'm not satisfied with just going, wow, that was overwhelming and that being the end of it. For those of you who want to be able to grapple with your questions and want to now sink into each of those chapters that we kind of flew over, on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., Bill meets in this room for about an hour and a half to unpack chapter by chapter through that section. So for those of you who are interested, you can just join us here on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. or join us online, Wednesdays at 7 p.m., to continue that conversation. But for today... We are jumping into the tail end of Revelation. We have about four chapters left to go. And I got got to tell you, they are some of the best, most exciting ones to come. And so I'm going to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 19, and by the way, this is going to be easy to find. It's one of the last pages of your Bible. But as you're turning there, context is key. Without context, we can easily totally misunderstand what's going on or most of what we read will be lost on us. So let me very briefly try to bring us up to speed for those of you who might be new to Lighthouse and might not understand what's going on. In the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the main character, our triune God. We are introduced to the the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the throne room in chapters 4 and 5. There we see the Father sitting on the throne in, in the kind of... Uh, the control center of creation sitting on the throne. He is in control. We know this because he has the scroll that documents how it's all going to play out in his hands. And then we're introduced to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is, who has overcome, has conquered his enemies by allowing himself to be slain for us. And Jesus is the only one in all of creation who is found that is worthy to open the scroll and to carry the Father's plans through to completion. And he is able to do so because he allowed himself to be sacrificed. And Jesus has upon himself the sevenfold or the complete spirit of God empowering him. And so we see all three members of the triune God there. And they are the center of the heavenly worship. But... God in his triune form is not the only character we are introduced to in Revelation because there is a counter to him, an enemy that is seeking to thwart him. And where the one chapter that Bill leaned into last week, Revelation chapter 12, is key to the entire book. It's almost like it's the center post that the whole thing pivots on because in chapter 12, we are introduced to the enemy or the adversary. His name is the Satan. And by the way, it's not a name, it's a title. The Satan literally means the adversary. And whose adversary is he? The father's. He's trying to thwart the purpose and the plans of God. But as we see in chapter 12, every single time he tries to thwart God's plans, he fails spectacularly. He failed in heaven when he tried to overthrow God in the throne room, and he was cast out of heaven. He failed when he tried to thwart the birth of Jesus through King Herod, who wanted to kill all of the babies. He failed when he tried to tempt Jesus and question the truth of God's words. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Oh, really? If you are the son of God, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Prove it. Jump off the thing. And and when he couldn't get Jesus to question his identity... He tried to get him to change up the approach to his purpose. Okay, you want to have all of the nations? That's fine, I can give them to you. Just bend a knee to me. But he failed in that. He even failed when he was able to coax God's people, the Jews, into turning on their Messiah and demanding his crucifixion. He failed because what he thought would be his greatest victory was actually his greatest defeat. It was the moment when Jesus triumphed and broke the back of Satan's power. And so because the adversary loses every time he tries to stand up to our father directly, he goes about it in a different fashion. He now tries to attack him in the shadows by attacking his kids, you and me and every other image bearer who calls God Lord. Every single image bearer who identifies as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as opposed to a citizen of the kingdom of the world, that is his target. And he uses lies. He, he uses accusation. He whispers in our ear, you are a failure. Just give up. Just stop trying. He tries to allure us, to tempt us away from the Father. And and say, instead of following his values, follow my values. They're worth celebrating. And in fact, if you're not woke, if you're not following them. And so he tries to woo us to follow and to celebrate what causes the Father's heart to grieve. And the book of Revelation is written to those of us who are in this in-between time, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, to stand firmly against the ploys of our adversaries. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't lose sight of what's going on. You're living in the middle of a war zone and you have an enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking to take you down. Stand firmly because we know how it ends. Jesus wins. He loses. So don't lose heart. Things are not as they seem. But not everybody withstands the Allure of the enemy. There are those who bend a knee and follow him and are shaped more by his values than the values of our Creator. And so, in the latter chapters of the middle section of Revelation, we're introduced to a new character, the Babylon or the, the great prostitute. And basically, Babylon represents all of those individuals in the world who turn their back on their Creator and choose to follow the adversary, choose to be shaped by his values. And at times it seems like Babylon is winning. At times it seems like those who follow the enemy flourish while those who stand and resist his attempts to tempt us away from the Father suffer. That was certainly the case in John's day. And I guarantee you that when they were hearing about the Babylon or the great prostitute, they were automatically thinking of Rome. Because this was a nation that had set itself against the Father. The the, the leader of Rome at that time was calling himself the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and demanding that people worship him as their Savior. But Rome was not the first, and it certainly won't be the last Babylon. There are a lot of citizens of Babylon that live all around us who are being shaped more by the world and the enemy than they are by their Lord and Savior. They're the one that created them and in his image and called us to follow them. And again, at times it seems like they are flourishing. And those of us who try to resist the allure of the world and our enemy are the ones who suffer. But there will come a day when Babylon will fall. And those who have followed the adversary will recognize the mistakes of their choices. And in chapter 18, we're not going to read it. I'm just letting you know I'm setting up the context for what we're about to read. In chapter 18, we come to the moment of that fall when Babylon is destroyed. And as we pick up the story in chapter 19, as we pick up this narrative, it is out of that that these words flow. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, after the fall of Babylon, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! We just sang those words. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants because remember, many... Followers of Christ were being put to death and were suffering because of their unwillingness to bend a knee to the enemy. Again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from the great prostitute goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures who were surrounding the throne of God fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given to her to wear and then a little insert fine linen stands for the righteous acts of god's holy people and then the angel said to me hey write this down blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb and he added these are the true words of god at this i fell down at his feet to worship and he said don't do that I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and your sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, Worship God. For it's the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus. Don't worship me. Worship God. He alone is worthy of your worship. Now, there's a lot there. And I spent a little bit of time setting up the context, so hopefully it made a little more sense. But in order to really understand what's going on in this passage, I want to lean into two areas. The first is a single word that I said four times, and it's a word that we sang this morning. And that word is hallelujah. It's a word that many of us who grew up in the church are familiar with. But this is actually the first and only place in the entire New Testament that we come across these words, hallelujah. We think we know what it means, but do we really know what it means? Because hallelujah is more than just a praise. Hallelujah is actually an imperative command. And it's, and it's two Hebrew words that are shoved together. Hallelujah is taken from the Hebrew hallelujah, which means you praise. It's like a command to the group of, of people there. Hey, let's all join together, but let's praise Yah or Jah, which is Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the name of God and it's a name that Jews very seldom would pronounce because they wanted to honor him they don't want to take God's name in vain some of you who watch youtube a lot you hear God's name played around like it's just a filler word like it's flippant the Jews who recognized the reverential respect for God would never use his name like a curse word and so they reserved it solely for when they were praising him let's praise Yahweh that's what that means Let's praise him. Like I said, this is the only place, not just in Revelation, but in the entire New Testament that we run across the word hallelujah, and we get it four times in rapid, you know, kind of following in rapidly. Three times it's on the voices of the multitude of people in heaven who are worshiping God. One time it's on on the lips of the elders who surround the throne, who represent the multitudes before God. But it's a word that is found all throughout the Old Testament, most specifically in the book of Psalms, which is a book of of songs and praises to God. And the place that we run across it the most is actually found in Psalms 113 to 118. Those are known as the Hallel Psalms or the You Praise Psalms. And those are Psalms that are read or recited, or sung every Passover by Jews around the world. They still do it today. Jesus, in fact, on the night where he was with his disciples, was singing or reciting those words. And those words of the Hallel Psalms celebrate The day that God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, redeemed them for himself and ultimately took for himself a people that would be set apart for him. And those words came to have new meaning as the the prophets would begin to prophesy about a time when God would return to do a similar act of redeeming his people. But this time it wouldn't be from Egypt. It would be from their greater enemy, the Babylon. That stood in opposition to God. So they began to look forward to a day when God would redeem his people again, just as he had in Egypt, that they celebrate every Passover. And when he does, what are they going to sing? Hallelujah. So it is no coincidence that John uses these or John sees the heavenly choirs and the, and the throngs of people shouting hallelujah because that day has come. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is this idea of a wedding feast that we are introduced to. Because it is a central part of this whole scene. But it's also, and you may not be aware of this, it is a central theme that runs all throughout Scripture. This idea that there will come a day when God will throw a huge, massive feast or celebration. And that wedding feast of the Lamb that we read about here, in the Old Testament... They called it the wedding feast of God because they were anticipating a day when the new heaven and the new earth, when the old stuff had kind of been wiped away and the new heaven and the new earth, it had been restored back to the way God intended it. And when that happens and we get to be with God just like we were in the Garden of Eden back before sin began to warp the world, they describe it like a wedding feast. And here we begin to hear the words Blessed is everyone who is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is a theme that runs even throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself in Matthew 22 talked about the parable of the wedding banquet. The words of that. Can we throw them up on the screen here? He says, the kingdom of heaven. These are the first words of the parable he said in Matthew chapter 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, if we were to pull out the meaning of this, who is the king he's referring to? This is the interactive portion of the, the day. Who's the king he's referring to? God, the father, right? Who's the son? Jesus. Jesus okay. So God, God, the father, one day will set, uh, throw a massive celebration to celebrate the wedding of his son, which begs the question then, well, who's he marrying? And here's the thing. Blessed is everyone who is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And you and I and every other believer are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, but we are not coming as guests. We are coming collectively as the bride. And I would imagine that sounds really strange to my son and, and others who are young and who are not thinking about marriage. They're just thinking about Fortnite. I imagine this is going to sound very strange to those of you who may have had a really rough marriage, might not find yourselves married anymore. And for you, that just sounds like, ah, don't know that I feel good about that. It might sound very strange to those of you with a wife chromosome who are going, uh, can I at least be the groom? But this is a theme found all throughout Scripture, from in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A theme that God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, our triune God, is our husband, and we, the church. And when I say church, I don't mean a building. I mean a people. This, is, this building we're in is just a box that the church gathers in. The church is the bride, and you don't have to take my word for it. Let's take a look at a couple of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament where we run across this. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 54. We read, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Or think about the Ten Commandments, the foundation for what it meant to be in relationship with God and with one another. The very first words of the Ten Commandments begin with this. Oh, well, yeah, it began with silence. And then, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of any created thing, for I am a jealous God. You might hear that word jealous and think, well, that's not very befitting of God. And truth be be told, jealousy often is negative when it it is un... if I started getting jealous because my wife was having a conversation with somebody else in the church today, that would probably be inappropriate jealousy, right? Petty jealousy. But would I be right to feel jealous if, my, if I saw my wife dating another man, saw my wife holding another man's hand, saw my wife kissing another man? Would I have a right as her husband to feel jealousy in that moment? You betcha! And God is saying the same thing. I am jealous for your hearts. I won't share you with any other so-called God. I won't share your heart with another lover. The Apostle Paul picks up on that theme in 2 Corinthians. Can we throw that up there? He writes this to the the Christians living in Corinth. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Because I promised you to one husband, to Christ. Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Your heart belongs to him. Don't give it to any others. This theme of, the, of we being married to God, betrothed to God even flows into the, the language and the heart of those seven messages that we studied there at the beginning of Revelation. Remember in chapter two and chapter three, there were seven messages to seven churches. And over and over and over in those messages, there was a theme. Your heart belongs to God. Don't give it to any other. So he says to the Ephesians, hey, you're doing a lot of good work in my name. But this one thing I have against you, you have lost your first love you're doing things motivated out of obligation and responsibility rather than your love for me and my love for you come back to me or the very last of those seven messages to the Laodiceans your love has grown lukewarm I'm standing at the door and knocking just open the door and let me come in so we can eat together There's this picture of our God who is reaching out to his his bride and saying, come back to me. Remember how deeply I love you. And so, I cannot say it any more strongly and more plainly, as much as it might make you feel awkward, you and I and every other believer in history is part of the collective bride of Christ. And on this particular moment in Revelation chapter 19. We are given, we begin to hear the culmination of everything that we've looked forward to. We have a a lover of our souls. Somebody who loved us so much that he was willing to go to the cross for us. That's how much he loved us. And this is the culmination of everything we've looked forward to. So blessed are those who, who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And you, and you, and you, and you, and I are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, but we are not invited to attend merely as guests. We're far, far more special to him than that because we're his bride. In a moment, we're going to unpack what the wedding feast means. But before we do that, I want to take just a couple of minutes to, to outline What a first century Jewish wedding would entail because here's the thing the wedding feast of the lamb is a metaphor For the eternal union that we get to have with christ. It's simply a word picture Intended to help us understand a great theological truth It's intended to take something that's pretty heady and bring it down and put those cookies on the bottom shelf So you and I can reach them And so in order to make the most sense of that word picture, that metaphor of the wedding feast of the Lamb, let me just briefly outline what a wedding in the first century for a Jewish individual would entail. Because this is the picture they would have in their minds as they're hearing about the wedding feast. There are three parts of a wedding in first century Judaism. There's the engagement, or more specifically the betrothal, There's the preparation period in between the engagement and the wedding feast. And then it all culminates with the wedding feast. And I'm going to just take a moment and lean into each of those three things and sketch out what it would look like, because it's going to begin to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. The betrothal. In the beginning, when a groom is ready to establish the marriage covenant with his wife, he would leave his father's house. He would travel with his best man, and he would go to the house of the bride's father. And there, they would have a long conversation about what's it going to take for you to let me marry your daughter. And in that conversation, they would agree upon upon a bride price. In other words, you don't just get the bride for free because you, you love her. You have to pay a price for her. This is called the bride price. And once they agreed upon the price and that price was paid, in that moment, they are, for all intents and purposes, married, although they will not consummate the marriage at that point, so they call themselves betrothed. <clears throat> when they agree upon the bride price, there is a cup that they will share. And they call it the cup of the new covenant. And in fact, they would, they would pray this benediction over it. This cup is a new covenant between the groom and his bride. Following that, the groom would then leave the bride's house, travel back to his father's house, and over a period of sometimes six months, more often closer to a year, he would prepare a place in his father's house to bring his bride for them to live together. Most of the time, this looked like building an addition onto the house for their family to live in. The bride would not participate in the preparation in that way, but she had some preparation of her own because her way of preparing for their final union was that she would need to keep herself pure during that time. That meant that she was already, for all intents and purposes, married. Her her heart belonged to another, so therefore she should not be out flirting with other men, going on dates with other guys. This would be completely unbefitting of a woman who was betrothed to a man. And then, when the preparation process is complete, the groom would gather up his best man and his entourage, and he would make his way back to the bride's home, back to her father's house. But, in order to keep some excitement and mystery in all of this, he would not tell her when he is coming. Nobody outside of the groom would know when he is coming. And to make it even more exciting, he would often intentionally show up in the middle of the night. Now, brides, how would you like that to, for your marriage, right? You're, you're in the middle of sleep. You got bedhead galore, and all of a sudden you hear, here comes the groom. And you're like, what? Oh Yeah, I know. That, I think that that was more for the groom than it was for the bride, quite honestly. As the groom and his entourage began to make their way into the the town of the bride, and keep in mind, this is probably close to midnight that this is happening, his entourage, led by the best man, would say, hey, here comes the groom, everybody wake up, come out and see the groom. You wake up the entire village. Everybody gets excited. And then here comes the bride, right? As soon as she starts hearing the cries, here comes the groom. She jumps up and she grabs her wedding dress, whatever she's been planning and preparing to wear. And all of her bridesmaids, they run over to her house and they're putting on their dresses and they're getting their stuff on. And and then they all come stumbling out and the bridesmaids are carrying their lanterns so that they can light the way. And the groom and his entourage meet the bride and her bridesmaids out in front of the house. And there's a brief exchange of vows. And this is a moment where the, the, the groom takes his bride officially from her father and then begins to lead her back to his father's house. And when they get there, there is a party set up. There is no rival in the Jewish faith for the party that they have. Food and wine and musicians and lots and lots of seats for everybody from her town and from their town to be able to celebrate together. And that wedding feast would last sometimes seven days, sometimes even as long as 14 days. Those of you with daughters, how would you like to pick up the tab on that one? (laughs) Makes me grateful I have sons for that moment. That is what it looked like. To get married in the first century, those three parts, a betrothal, a waiting period, and then the wedding feast that culminates the wedding. Now let's step back for a moment and consider how this informs Jesus' entrance into our world because 2,000 years ago, our Lord and our Savior, the groom, left his father's home and he was preceded. By his best man, John the Baptist, who calls himself the the bride, the attendant of the bridegroom, pointing to Jesus as the groom. And he entered into our reality, took on human flesh, and ultimately he came to collect his bride, the church, which is you and me and every other believer throughout history. But there was a problem. We weren't free to go with him. Because the wages of sin is death. And every single one of us had sinned. Every single one of us had fallen short of God's righteous standard. And so the price had to be paid. But rather than simply leaving us as tarnished, rather than giving up on us, Jesus paid the bride price. His life for our life. His blood was the price that he paid, and he paid it willingly. He loves us that much. And do you remember what he said to his disciples on the night before he paid that bride price as they were having that meal in the upper room together, and they're they're passing bread, and then he takes a cup. And he says, this cup, is a cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Very reminiscent of the blessing that was the benediction that was prayed over the betrothal of a new wife and a new husband. Jesus was following this custom. The bride price was his blood, and he pointed them and said, this this cup represents my blood, which which is the new covenant established so that we can be together forever. And then, on the heels of that, do you remember what he says to his disciples? He says, guys, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't follow. And they freak out. Why can't we go with you? We'll go wherever you go. And he says, no, no, no. Where I go, you can't follow yet. And then, Yeah, you got to see the words just a second ago. But then he says this to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Because if I go away, I'm coming back. And this is where we find ourselves today. We are in this in-between time between Jesus' first coming, when he betrothed us to himself and paid the price for our lives through his blood, and the second coming when he will come back and take us home to be with him forever, not just for seven days, not just for 14 days, for all eternity we are going to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and I got, guys I can't wait till we get to chapters 21 and 22 and we get to describe and explore what that place is going to look like but in the meantime we need to ask ourselves well what does it mean to live in this in-between time how do we navigate this there's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to Um, in Revelation chapter 19, when John first hears the cries of hallelujah, can you imagine him knowing what I've just described to you, knowing it because he grew up in that culture? Uh, he, He knew God's word implicitly. It was hidden in his heart. So when he hears those first cries of hallelujah, I guarantee you he recognized what they meant. And I can only imagine his heart started beating quickly. As he heard, hallelujah, here comes the groom. Hallelujah, the wait is over. Hallelujah. The great prostitute has fallen, and now it's time for the wedding feast of the lamb. Hallelujah. Blessed is everybody who gets invited. I can only imagine how excited he was. And you and I are invited to that feast as well, but not as guests. We get to come as the bride. I want to look for just a moment, Um, actually before we do that, I want to remind us that because we are waiting in this in-between time, we have a responsibility, and it is not to go do a lot of things. Our one and only responsibility in this time is to keep our hearts from being pulled away by false lovers, by rivals, by the adversary or by anything else that would woo us away. Paul put it this way in, in, um, where was it? Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Can we throw that up on the screen? He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, that price being Christ's blood. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That is our one and only responsibility, which then begs the question, well, how do we do this? How do we go about doing that? How do we go about preparing ourselves Look at verse 7 in chapter in Revelation 19. We read the words of the, the great multitude that are singing, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And then we're reminded that that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So here's my question. Who prepares the bride to get married? Who prepares the bride for the groom's return? Does the bride? Or does someone else? Because you notice, the bride has made herself ready, so there's some insinuation that she has prepared herself, but then there's also this follow-up line, For fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And that linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. And there's a tension in these verses that's found elsewhere in the New Testament. A tension between we have a responsibility to keep our hearts from being wooed away, but we also recognize that we don't do it by our own strength that God helps us in that. And this is a tension found in the book of Philippians as well when Paul is talking about what it means to follow Christ. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 and 13 he writes, "Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." That's our responsibility. But he doesn't stop there. He says, "For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes." We have a responsibility And God works in us. So how do we do? How how does He work in us? How does God help us? Because this is not on us. And thank the Lord it's not. Because if it was, every single one of us, when the groom showed up, would be in bed with another lover. We would follow this world. We would follow the, the adversary so quickly if it was by our own strength. So how? Does the Father and how does the the Son, our Lord, protect us and give us the strength to stand against the wooing of a roaring lion that prowls around looking for someone whom he may devour? The answer is the Holy Spirit. When you say yes to Jesus, when you accept him into your life, it's not like you get a little two-inch Jesus to live in in one of the atriums of your heart, right? That's not how that works. When you say yes to Jesus, he immediately gives you the Holy Spirit to reside in you, both as a mark of ownership, this one belongs to me, as well as a source of empowerment to enable you to begin to be shaped and prepared as his bride for his return. It is through the enablement of the Holy Spirit that you and I can even cry out, Jesus is Lord. It is through the enablement of the Holy Spirit that we have any hope of being ready for when he returns. And thank God for the Holy Spirit. That's why we're constantly saying, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Just move in our midst. Help yourself to us. Continue to expose the areas of our life that are contrary to the heart of our God because we want to be ready and we don't want to be wooed by other lovers. So we are reading today about a moment in history that believers throughout history have looked forward to. And for John, it was a moment of excitement. I think for us, it's a moment of excitement. I'm like, yes, Lord Jesus, come on, get back here quick because the gas prices are really expensive. But he's not back yet. And we haven't heard those cries of hallelujah, here comes the groom. And we live in this in-between time between Jesus's first coming and his second coming, between our betrothal and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so how now shall we live today and tomorrow and until the moment where he returns? And there's five five things that as we lean into this, five things that I want to identify. We're going to go through them really briefly. I don't want to belabor this. First thing is if we are truly engaged to the Lamb, if we've said yes to him, then we have a powerful illustration of the nature of Jesus' love for us. I love my son, both of them. I love my dog, Sadie. I love my coworkers. I love my family. I love you. But I don't love any of you in quite the same way as I do my wife. And I am not talking about sexually. I am talking about the fact that my wife holds a sacred place in my heart. She is my partner to whom I have covenanted my life. For better or for worse. In good times as well as hard ones. My heart is not my own any longer because it belongs to her as well. And hers belongs to me. And that is the metaphor that Jesus has used That is the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe the way he feels about you. I want to remind you that your relationship has more to do with how he loves you than how you love him. I'm going to say that again because that's really important. The security of your relationship to him has less to do with how much you love him than it does with how much he loves loves you. And if you question how much he loves you, just look to the cross. He loves you that much. And that means that you don't have to try to earn his love. You already have it. You don't have to do something to be worthy of it. You already have it. Your job is not to earn it. It is simply to rest in it and live out of it. Secondly, Since we're engaged to the Lamb, the fundamental issue of discipleship is faithfulness. We are no longer our own. We belong to Him. And we live in a world where there are lots and lots of rivals for our heart. We have an adversary that is prowling around looking for a way to distract you and woo you away. We are surrounded by citizens of Babylon who say, hey! What's the big deal? You can do this and do that and live this way and still be engaged to the lamb. And just saying that out loud exposes what a ridiculous thought that is. You are no longer your own. You were bought at a price. Honor him with your body. Don't allow yourself to be wooed by this world. Thirdly, since we are betrothed, Sin is not only missing the mark, it is adultery. It is cheating on your spouse. It begins to give a new depth. And that's not to shame you. It is simply to wake you up to the gravity of our sin. Fourth, if we're engaged through the Lamb, then the call to loyalty is a call to be ready. We don't know when he's going to come back. But we trust by faith. He's coming back. He is preparing a place for us. Oh, I can't wait till we get there. I can't wait till we just get to describe and explore what it's like. But in the meantime, our job is to be ready for him. And thank God that he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us in that endeavor because apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. The Holy Spirit is God's empowerment upon us to help cleanse us, purify us, shape us, so that we will be ready when he does come back. Guys, if you have been resisting the spirit, stop pushing against him. He's been given to you for a reason. Don't disregard that still, quiet voice. It's not Jiminy Cricket. It is the spirit of the living God in you to remind you what it looks like to live as his bride. Don't resist or ignore that voice. And fifth, if we're engaged to the lamb, then the call to discipleship is a call to simplicity because we live in a world that gives us lots and lots and lots of other wonderful, shiny objects to distract us politics, 24-hour news cycle, social media, the world in our pocket, sports. I know March Madness is exciting. I know Green Bay Packers just spent more than any of us will, all of us together will make for one individual to play for a couple of years, whatever, right? Our identity is not found in those things, our value cannot be those. The world will pepper us with things to say, this is what gives your life meaning. This is what you need to give your heart to. But you remember, for those of you who are married or those of you who have found your sweetie and your heart belongs to them, do you remember what it was like when you fell in love and how easy it was No matter what was going on in your life, how easy it was to drop whatever was going on when that individual was available. They had your heart. They had your attention. Now, it's sometimes really easy, like Kathy just the other day was like, hey, I'm really frustrated how often I come down to want to talk to you and you're staring at your phone. There are so many distractions that get in the way of relationships. And in the here and now, right now, we need to resist all the distractions for our heart because he longs for us. And the most important thing, the last thing I'm going to say, is we need to, re- learn, we need to remember how deeply we're loved so that we can rest in that love. Again, it's not a love that you can earn. It's not something that you have to jump through some hoops to be deserving of. There are some of you in here this morning who I, I'm describing what it means to be the bride of Christ, and you're like, well, this is an interesting intellectual discussion, but for me, it, it doesn't mean much of anything because I'm not in. I, I, I don't consider Jesus that, and, and perhaps the reason is you don't feel worthy of his love. You don't feel worthy of his acceptance. You don't feel worthy To be united with him. And if that's how you feel, then I've got good news. You're in really good company. Because you're not worthy. And neither am I. And neither is Jeff. And neither is any other person sitting in this room or listening online. We are not worthy. Which is why his sacrifice on the cross and his willingness to move towards us is a gift of grace rather than wages earned. We don't deserve it, and yet he lavishes his love on us anyway because that's how he feels about us, irrespective of whether you feel like you're deserving of his love. You are loved. And you don't don't believe me? Just look to the cross. The tangible reminder of just how much he loved us. You're loved. And all that is required of you to begin that journey, to begin your betrothal to the Lamb, To become part of the Bride of Christ, this family of messy, imperfect believers, is to say, Jesus, I accept that gift. Jesus, I invite you to to come into my life as my Lord. Holy Spirit, I invite you to to fill me up and to begin the, the preparation process. It simply looks like, you know, how, how, how do you take a gift? You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You simply reach out your hands and you take it and you say, thank you. That is how you become betrothed to the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb of God. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to pray a prayer for those of you who might be exploring this idea. For those of you who might be ready and you're just kind of like, okay, help me, let me help you. There's nothing magical about these words and every single time I've ever prayed this, it has been a different prayer. So there's nothing specific about this other than, let me just pray it. And if you want, you can repeat it or you can pray some other words that, are, that reflect the meaning of your heart. Jesus, I need you. I don't feel deserving of your love. But I accept that you love me anyway. I made a mess of my life. And yet you want me anyway. So I accept the gift of grace that you paid for on the cross. And I invite you to send the spirit of God into my heart. To begin preparing me for eternity. Jesus, thank you for loving me that much. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. If you have said yes to Jesus today or at any other point, then the most natural response for us this morning is to take communion. And I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. But communion was what Jesus loves to use metaphors to help us get really heady theological concepts in a way that we can understand them. And communion was something he modeled for his disciples the night before he went and paid the bride price to finally establish us as his bride. The bread symbolizing his body, the cup that cup of the new covenant in his blood that he shed for us so that we could spend eternity with him. And so if you are part of the family of God, Jeannie, Charlie, would you guys come up here? Um, Kat and I will be over here. Jeff, you guys got the back? Who's got it? Come on. Somebody else has got it. I can't see. I got got 44-year-old eyes right now. So I'm just going to trust that there will be somebody back there serving. I know you're like 44. Stop whining, Eric. Okay, you who have glasses or LASIK, let you be the first to cast the first stone, right? Um, we're going to be up here to serve. Let's come and get the communion elements, and then you can go back and, and together, as family, we're going to celebrate communion. So, come and get the elements. I got to tell you, it was pretty special having my boy help serve with my wife today. Um, I love that we get to be family, and it is because of what this symbolizes that we are. And so we as a family are going to celebrate the truth that is contained in this metaphor. That's all this is. This is just bread. This is just grape juice because we're not going to feed you wine. There's minors here but it is symbolic of a much, much deeper, richer truth. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, the next day he would go and willingly pay the bride price so that we could be betrothed to him and begin have a complete and radical transformation of our identity from sinners, rejects, slaves... To sin and shame to being the bride of Christ and on that night he took a piece of bread and he passed it out to his disciples he said this bread symbolizes my body that's given to you take and eat in remembrance of how much I love you and then he took that cup It's a lot of bread And then he took the cup. And in words that were radically reminiscent of the benediction that was prayed over a groom and a bride on the day that they became betrothed, he took that cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant that is being established with my blood. It's symbolic of my blood. Take this in remembrance of how deeply I love you. So family let's drink together. And Jesus, we are so unbelievably grateful that you love imperfect people like us and that you want to spend eternity with us. We're so thankful that you have invited us to that wedding feast. Whenever it starts, we're excited for it. In the meantime, We recognize that we are not our own. We were bought at a price and we want to honor you with our body and Holy Spirit, help us, please. We need your help. Oh, we need your help. Have your way in us as we now worship you, our Lord and our God. I Pray that you would be honored through the cry of our hearts that are now being poured out in song. Let's worship together, family.
0: Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. the fountain.
1: Week after week, I am growing more and more amazed at how not scary Revelation is, but how utterly relevant it is to us who live in this in-between time. I'm really, really grateful that we have a Lord and a Savior who loves us so much, that He has done everything needed for us to be restored back into relationship with Him. And I am so looking forward to Him coming back. I would imagine you are as well. May we live as people who are waiting for our Lord to return. May we not be caught sleeping. May we not be caught flirting with the world. May we not sin against him. I just that picture of it being adultery more than just missing the mark. It's just so much more powerful. There are some of you who... Are either here today or you were watching online, that for you, you've taken that first step and you said yes to Jesus. And I want you to know that we have an enemy who's still going to come after you. He doesn't just stop when you say yes to him. In fact, he comes harder because he wants to try to distract you and cause you to second guess a decision that you have made. And if that's you, if you've said yes to him and you're kind of just floating out there on your own, please let us know. We want to walk with you. And if you're at home, you can just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you're here, I ask you to grab a connection card and fill it out. Let us know that you've made that decision. Or even if you're just a visitor here and this is the first time you've come or maybe the third time you've come and you haven't let us know that you've been here, we want to know how we can contact you so we can show you how to take the next steps towards getting into community because we can't do this journey of following Jesus alone. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit, but we also need one another, and the best way we do that is through life groups. As the guy who typically stands up here speaking on Sunday mornings, I will be the first to say what happens in the middle of the week in people's homes is more important than what happens here on Sunday mornings, more impactful especially. So please don't miss the best of what Lighthouse has to offer, and if you're here, you just let us know. Give us your contact information. You can drop it in one of the white boxes in the back. Those of you who call Lighthouse home, if you want to give, you know that's where they can go or you can give online. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. I'm so looking forward to the next three chapters of Revelation that we get to unpack, and then I'm so looking forward to celebrating Easter with you. But now, Lighthouse community, the bride of Christ, go be the church. Have a wonderful week.